Hey everyone, welcome to episode 247 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by John Paul Caponegro, a full-time photographer living in the small town of Cushing, Maine, and the son of legendary photographer Paul Caponegro. John Paul was steeped in the classical American tradition of landscape photography at an early age, and he has since made a name for himself by blending his photography with a variety of other art forms, both digital and analog. Over on Patreon this week, join John Paul and I as we discuss his pursuit of studying creativity, how he has gone about doing it, and how it has helped him as an artist. Thanks to our newest patron, Kevin Sink, for joining the growing Patreon community, and to patron Craig McCord for increasing your pledge. You too can show that you value the podcast by supporting it on Patreon by going to patreon.com forward slash f-stop and listen. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, John Paul Caponegro, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks, man. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm admiring this amazing book collection you have behind us, behind you on your video screen. And that really just prompted me to ask, what kind of books are, are you reading these days? Oh, um, the last year and a half has been this deep dive into poetry. Oh, uh, awesome. And it's something that's been a passion for my, my whole life. Uh, I studied literature in college as well as art. I was doing a dual major there. And, um, you know, I kind of got the canon in um, university, you know, the Robert Frost, the Hart Crane, the Robert Penn Warren actually came in and read his poems to us at the ripe age of 80 something. I don't know. It was great to have this old timer come in and his craggly voice read his poetry. It was terrific. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I feel like I knew nothing about the contemporary scene. And when COVID hit and I had to shut down my printing workshops, I had had my eye on taking this one poetry workshop. I just thought, wow, I'd love to do that. But it's right when I'm teaching a digital printing course. COVID shut that course down. The course was online. I got to study with Richard Blanco, who was Obama's presidential inaugural poet. Oh, Um, yeah. Cuban, Latinx, ter- terrifically warm fellow. It was, it was, it was a wonderful thing. And the great pause gave me this deep immersion into the contemporary scene. And also to get after this bucket list item, I said, I know I want to write at least this one book of poetry before I die. And the career has been so busy. Um, there was no time to do that. Suddenly I had all this time on my hands and said, you know, I could shift all this stuff online, these online courses, which I'll be bringing online next year anyway. But this is like a gift. Yeah. Uh, it, it was one of the most vital creative years of my life. A great pause gave me that time. I produced 200 images, wrote three books of poetry, a poem every single day. Um, I reorganized my database for my images. I rebuilt my website. I mean, yeah, no. I know. Um, I, lo- I love. I love. I love the fact that you saw COVID as this great opportunity, because I was kind of the same way. I I uh, I was super busy during COVID. Like I was like, oh my gosh, what a great what a great opportunity to, you know, do all this amazing stuff. And everyone else was like, this is awful. This is terrible. <laughs> and I'm like, no way. This is great. <laughs> right. I think that's kind of the gift of of any creative. Um, adventure that you're on. I don't want to call it a discipline. I, I want to call it an adventure. 
Yeah, um, I like that. If you have a creative outlet, then you never really have enough time to pursue that passion. And you're always trying to cram it into all of the other things that happen in your life. And suddenly, when everything else got shut down, you're quarantined, you can't go anywhere. We know exactly what to do with ourselves because we've been itching to get at that stuff for so long. I mean, That's literally, right. I finished a body of work that I've been thinking about for 10 years and, and finally just pulled the trigger and made it happen. So That's awesome. Creativity gives you the gift of being able to make your time valuable. Um, yeah, absolutely. You, you, kind of, you kind of think you never have enough time, right? We don't, right? You just right. want to keep at it. That's right. Um, but it does make the time you have so much more rich and um, deep. Yeah. Well, awesome, man. Well, geez, this is the longest I think we've ever gone on the show without me asking the first question, which is <laughs> introduce yourself. Like, tell us about you and, sure, and your, sure. your journey into photography. Right, right. Um, and I'm John Paul Caponegro, uh, born in Boston, raised in New Mexico. Now I live on the coast of Maine mid-coast Maine, little tiny town called Cushing, but you might know Andrew Wyeth, who used to live here, and many other artists live in this tiny little town where we get a lot of work done and see each other occasionally. You know, it's a great home base. Um, it's That's rural. Cool. It's beautiful. Um, a lot of people think I was destined to be a photographer because my father is a photographer. Right. I also might have been destined to be a painter because my mother was a painter. And both of those came together when Photoshop was introduced. It was like a dream come true. Um, I, I had watched my mother, a graphic designer also, oversee the production of many great books. George O'Keefe's, uh, well, Alfred Stieglitz's portrait of George O'Keefe. That was a funny Freudian slip because, you know, O'Keefe was still alive when she was working with mom. So I think of it as her book, right? It's a right. book about her, right? Um, so many of my dad's book, a long relationship with Elliot Porter, who was tremendously influential to me, both as an artist and, um, just as a young man. Um, so between all the colleagues of my father, you know, we teach the Ansel Adams workshop, we would, um, you know, rub elbows with Wynn Bullock and that whole West coast photography scene. He was East coast as well, though, because he was, hanging out with Minor White and so many of the East Coasters, and then all the people my mom worked with as well. It was um, just this fascinating parade of individuals. Uh, I, I think the main thing that I got from all of that is that everybody does things differently, which kind of gave me permission to kind of chart my way. Um, you know, so as I said, I, I, I studied both literature and art painting in college, and uh, shortly before that, my mother was overseeing Elliot Porter's Intimate Landscapes book, and they were using Cytex machines or digital retouching stations to do the separations on that uh, book. And my mom called them million-dollar coloring books. And we got this 15-minute, you know, this was back in like the, the, the mid to late 70s, you know, and it cost $300 an hour. So this was a quick 15-minute tour. And, you know, do the math, that was a $75 tour, something like that. Right. Uh -huh, yeah. Um, but I left that room thinking, Oh my God, how am I going to get my hands on a million dollar coloring book? Because I see what they're doing for palm olive here. They just turned green to purple and they changed the proportions and they tripled, you know, they took one bottle and made three and they put it back in the bag. I'm like, what if an artist could get a hold of that instead of a corporation? Imagine what you could do. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, as a young man, I had a lot of different influences. And I think uh, Ansel Adams and Elliot Porter in particular were very influential to me because of their environmental and political advocacy as well. Um, but I also I also remember 
Elliot describing his place no one knew, the Glen Canyon project, um, you know, the pictures he made of it before it got filled up with water, he described it as a eulogy. Mm. He felt that book yes. hadn't come out quickly enough, not in time enough to kind of make a difference and, and stop the water from rising. Of course, now we know that the water is sinking all over again, largest <laughs> bathtub ring in the world. <laughs> That's right. It's really yeah, it's funny. One of my, one of my favorite memes is like, uh, about Lake Powell and it's like, uh, um, what's his name from the matrix? Uh, you know, he's basically saying, what if I told you that, that Lake Powell isn't nature? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it didn't used to look like that, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. The altered nature, <laughs> the altered nature. So, yeah. um, I moved up to, to Maine in 1989 and in 1990, because of the main photo workshops, and that's one of the reasons I was here as a kid, my dad taught the, the first, one of the first workshops here at the main photo workshops when it first opened, I was five. And he'd come back many years after to continue teaching. So it was, it was a place I was familiar with in the summers. He'd come up for a week or three. And, um, and I, I knew that there'd be a built-in community and that uh, real estate was far more affordable here in Maine than it was in New Mexico or in California. Right. right. <laughs> so I, I used to joke that my uh, 20 acre farm, the mortgage for my 20 acre farm was $50 less than a two room apartment in Santa Cruz in 1986. <laughs> I did the math. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, 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 it's been a neat community, interesting to watch it develop. And so Kodak set up their digital training center here because of the main photo workshops. They were originally going to merge, but they became two entities. And I got to be an artist in residence and had run of the place, had access to the scanners, the the new XL seventy seven hundreds, Kodak's little digital um, spy plane printer. You know, there was these early ten by ten die subs. That was kind of the best photographic detail you could get. Epson wasn't around at that point, and there was this little little program called Photoshop. Photoshop one. So <laughs> my second mortgage was a Quadra eight hundred from Apple and a drum scanner and a. You know, I didn't buy the XL 7700. I, I waited and started beta testing printers for Epson, giving them feedback on it, watching that whole inkjet revolution develop and becoming a, a part, of, part of the community that helped educate other photographers as well. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you've been steeped in landscape and nature photography traditions your entire life. I mean, life. Your, your father, Paul Caponegro, is like a legend when it comes to uh, in photography circles, anyway, I feel like, especially, I don't know, people who are born in the, let's go with like 40s and 50s, probably, mm -hmm. you know, that generation, like my yeah. parents, probably about the same age as your dad. Yeah, um, dad's 89. Yeah, okay. So like, so what influence did he have on your work and and, and like where you are today? I'm, I'm guessing that I, I'm always curious to hear about this because I did not have that kind of influence in my life. Um and I think there's probably some pros and cons to that and to some mm -hmm. degree, but I'd love to hear you talk about that. Yeah. Um, he's had a tremendous influence. How could he not have? He's kind of not only exposed me to so much of what I just shared with you, um, just by hanging out with who he's hanging out with, right? right. But also just watching him work. Um, he also kind of laid my traditional foundation, showed me how to make a great print in the traditional darkroom. Um, dad really is to my mind, the best, uh, probably the finest silver gelatin printer, um, living and definitely one of the tops in the history of, uh, photography, of course. 
Um, so he really sensitized me to what a print could be and things to look for. And, you know, at a certain point, it's not just craft, it's also appreciation. You know, it's, um, uh, you know, musicians listen to music a little differently because they're, they're so steeped in it. Um, it's, it's like when I get together with, uh, Greg Gorman or Seth Resnick, they're talking about wine and they're talking, they're talking all this language that I say, what are you talking about? Tell me, show me. Right. And they've deepened my appreciation of wine because of the language and because of the experience I'm able to share with them. So in the same way, dad and I would savor prints. Dad also has a, um, a deep appreciation for nature has always celebrated that. Um, so, you know, we're both nature based and or rooted uh he also both of my parents have been interested in um should we say the religious or metaphysical traditions of the world um, sure you know so they, they read widely i think my mom later in life has become deeply immersed in tibetan buddhism but uh you know originally her parents were episcopalian christian uh, but they were reading all kinds of things, including, I think, one Middle Eastern philosopher, Gurdjieff, was very influential at a certain point, um, more of a philosophy than a, than a spiritual practice, or maybe the two intersect. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and I think for Dan and I, um, spiritual practice and appreciation of nature definitely intersect. They're, they're, they're not necessarily one and the same thing, but they're, they're deeply interconnected. Um, so that, that is definitely rubbed off. And then you can start charting the differences. I mean, people look at me and they say, God, you look just like your father. Or they say, you look a thing like your father. And they say that about the photographs as well. <laughs> His are black and white, minor color. His are straight up, minor surreal composites. Uh, His are analog, minor digital. You know, you could, you could keep going. And yet there, there are some real um, strong um, resonances between the two. And this is one of the reasons we've actually uh, early on one of the local curators asked us to have a show of our work side by side. Oh, so that would be really cool to see. Yeah, it is. And it's neat to see it evolve. Uh, so we've took that out to the George Eastman house and it's been to a number of other venues as well. And it continues to evolve. And, and we're talking about doing a book together as well. Um, coming up soon. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm super curious uh, to hear you talk a little bit about, kind of your your personal journey in terms of either wanting to kind of differentiate yourself from your dad or like was that a conscious thing or did it just was it something that just evolved like I would love for you to talk a little bit about that sure um, it was totally a conscious thing um, you know as I was uh, late in my teens <laughs> dad's teaching at the main photo workshop so I'm hanging out uh, he comes back and says, okay, kid, you got your first show. I said, oh, cool. You know, main photo workshops, the, the gallery there. Um, he says, so they generally do group shows. Is the group show? Yeah. So, well, who else is in there? I am. Oh, okay. No pressure. Um, anybody else? You know, George Tice. Oh, okay. Um, anybody else? Elliot Porter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I haven't printed my first portfolio yet. Needless to say, I didn't sleep for three weeks. <laughs> I just <laughs> printed my butt off, uh, and you know, and, and it held up really well. Um, I, I got a lot of compliments, um, you know, and and some of the compliments were, "Wow, just like your father's." I'm like, okay, I'm going back to my pens, my pencils, my paints. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, is that a compliment or not? <laughs> Well, both. See, it's both because right, you know, right, right, right. Deeply respect his work, and and they meant it as a compliment. 
And yet as a young person, you also want to individuate, you want to find your own way. And and despite the fact that I had shown uh, some contemporary architecture, you know, glass and steel, which dad never photographed and some nudes, which dad never photographed, I still get that comment. Um, So, you know, I just had to sort that and, you know, other, other people's thinking can sometimes get into your thinking. You know, you kind of got to get out of other people's heads and get into your head and, and, and know what to filter, you know, and when you're young, that's, that's not as easy to do, you know, over the, over time, you know, when you get enough hard knocks, you get callous and you can just forget everything. Right. <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think that's, there's some truth to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully not. Um, I, th- I think you just have to find a way to sort it out yourself and find your own relationship to it. And when you've, when you've done work that you're really proud of, you stand by, you own, you feel it's yours. Um, there's, there's an incredible grounding that comes with that. You know, I, w- I would wish it for everyone. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to do something completely different. Like the fact that I make colorful photographs that are 40 by 60 inches of stones floating in deserts, you know, just, just cause dad never does that. Just cause Jerry Ulsman only did it in black and white. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it's more mine. Right. I think authenticity is very different than, than originality. Um, and so finding your own authentic voice, finding your way with things. Also just feeling like you go back to when you're like a little kid, you know, you, you make a drawing with crayons or something, you show it to your mom, look, mom, look what I made. And, and to some degree that's like, well, look who I am. Right. There's, it's a pretty loaded thing for, for little people. Right. And, and I don't think some of that ever goes away, you know, like, like, look what I did, look who I am being now, you know? I, th- I think we are what we do. Uh, and so the, the work we choose really does help us define ourselves. Uh, so I think once you have those personal successes, it's a lot easier to, to let some of that slide or to be able to listen a little more flexibly to, to people's impressions. And of course, you know, you, you go into a gallery or you go into art school or something else. And like, so <laughs> I could tell you a funnier story. Um, people are always asking you, who are your influences? So this is early days. Um, I, I decided to study photography with dad during the summers, uh, cause I was curious about it. And we went to visit a friend, Fergus Burke, who was the then photographer for the Abbey theater in Dublin and a very fine landscape photographer himself. And so he starts in, ah, so you're going into the family business, are you? <laughs> well, yes, that's great. That's great. That's grand. So, who are your influences? I'm like, well, Blake, Bosch. You know, I'm studying painting at this point. Oh, no, 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 no. Photographers, photographers. Oh, uh, Jerry Olson. No, pick another. He doesn't count. <laughs> this is pre Photoshop, right? <laughs> you know? But that whole notion of who are your influences, that's, that's a really interesting thing that helps people get a sense of this stuff is in this wheelhouse, it's this genre, it's this sensibility. I can kind of get a sense of it. Um, it. It helps. And at the same time, it can also limit. You need to say, okay, so now how are they different? What are you bringing to the table? Where are you going with it? How do you make it your own? And I think we all go through that. You know, we often find somebody whose work we really resonate with and you say, wow, I'd like to be able to do that. Or I'd like to be able to get some of that into my work or, or get that quality. And so we, we try and learn that. I mean, how many people have tried to study Ansel Adams and get that craft down? Um, but at a certain point, they realize they're not Ansel Adams. And as Keith Carter, another great photographer, says, you know, the world doesn't need another Ansel Adams. We've had one of those. What the world needs is you. 
But that doesn't mean that that influence doesn't need to be digested. If you can digest that influence, make it your own and use it in your own way, um, you're right. on your path. And, and you know, yeah, we, it's we see that a lot. <clears throat> we see that a lot in contemporary landscape photography where, you know, people will take someone's tutorial or something like that. And then everyone's images start looking the same. Like, oh, I can tell you took that person's tutorial because you've used that technique that in every one of your photos, you have that little thing going on over there that you learned from that thing. Like you can always see it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, uh, back it up two steps. It's like, where are Ansel's tripod marks? Or <laughs> right, 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 I gotta right, get right. that Mesa arch shot. So I'm gonna be there with the 20 other photographers, and we're all gonna get the same shot. But I'm gonna get my shot. I'm gonna prove that I'm, you know, I can. I was there. I did that. I can. I can get it. You know. Yeah. Okay. You can get the shot. To some degree, right. it also it just seems like trophy hunting. And what I what I would encourage people to do is, yeah, go ahead. I used to discourage people from doing that. Say, look, that's not really you. I mean, it's, somebody's already done that. But at a certain point, I think that's good practice, good craft. It can, it, that can be fun too, as long as we can, sure. as long as we can move beyond that, as long as we realize there's, there's a difference uh, to when you really show up and, and do something that that's your own. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. As, it's funny, as you were talking, I was wondering if what you're describing is kind of this, you know, this nebulous concept of voice, you know, like, yeah, who am I as a photographer? What am I trying to say with my f- photographs? And I'm, and I'm curious like, how did you find your voice? And maybe parenthetically, like, is that even a thing? <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, you know, I think it is really useful language to to think about it. And I actually would parse it out a little bit. I'd say there might be a difference between vision and style. So we might have a larger visual voice, but we can break it down into vision. Um, how are you seeing? And what are you saying with it? What are your concerns and uh, style? how do your images look? What kinds of operations you tend to go to produce those images? Like what's your way with things? And the two are deeply interrelated. If the style can, is, is in line with, if the form is in line with the content or the the vision of the work, then things, there's this kind of marvelous synergy. Of course, if they're not in line, you kind of get a mixed message. And if it's all about style, you got no message. It's just sitting there looking pretty. And I think photography is, uh, as a medium, is, um, let's just say, overpopulated with a lot of uh, well-crafted nothings. You know, it looks good. The lights are on. I'm not sure anybody was ever there, much less his home now. You know, so I always... (laughs) I like to quote Robert Frost's um, phrase, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so in, in many ways, we have to show up and be transformed by the work that we're doing. I think that's the real vulnerability of doing the work, not necessarily being criticized or judged by other people, but by actually risking, by deciding to live my life this way and to make these images and, and possibly see things in a new way, we have to risk change. But the cool thing is we're in collaboration with the world and our tools. And so we have this proactive agency in that as well. We can become a part of the change we want to be um, and, and, so what, and choose. Like boots to the ground, what does that look like? You know, what, you know, if someone's listening to this and they're a new photographer, they might be thinking like, that sounds awesome, but how the heck do I do that? Right. Um, it is useful to sort your influences. So like, what do you love? And also don't forget the stuff that you really hate too. Cause sometimes yes. you know, I don't want to be that, 
And, yes. and, and don't just stop there. I, I dislike it. Say why, you know, right. activate your inner three-year-old. I don't like it because of this. I don't like it because of this. I don't like it because of it. Or not do like this stuff. Why? Well, I love X, Y, and Z. And it reminds me of these. It makes me feel these ways, not just one way, but many ways. And I also, when I'm in, in that zone, I, I think of other things as well. And the web, the network of connections and associations and feelings that we each make is um, unique to every person, like a snowflake. That I, I love. I love the fact that you said, uh, "Don't be afraid to react to the things you don't like," and explore that more deeply. Because what I find, at least more recently, is that there's kind of this, I don't know, toxic positivity going around, where it's like <laughs> everyone has to good. like everything. It's like, oh, you did a good job, and that's beautiful, and it's like if you really don't like it, it's okay to say like, no, I don't like that, you know? And, and this is why I don't like it because I think that's how we develop our own personal, you know, style and vision like you're describing. And it's okay. It's, and as a receiver of that, it's okay. If someone says, I don't really like your stuff. And it's like, that's cool. If everyone liked my stuff, it probably would be kind of boring. You know, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah. Our audience is not the entire world. Um, exactly. Boom. So important to find your tribe. Right? Yes. There are going to be people who love the things you love. Plus also, you know, your experience in psychology, there are different ways of delivering the message that can be. Sure. Of course. Right. <laughs> <laughs> One of my prized possessions is my grandfather's mug that my mother handed down to me. It's this coffee cup that says diplomacy, the art of telling somebody to go to hell. So they look forward to making the trip. <laughs> like, uh, I have to use a little diplomacy with myself sometimes too. You know, there's, there's self-talk as well, right? <laughs> yes. No, yeah. that, that's definitely true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I think also we talked about, you know, emulating somebody who we would like to, you know, if we can't mentor with them directly, maybe indirectly, we look at their images, we look at their books, their prints, and, and we really savor the things that we love and say, I would like to try that. And we try and we try and we try. You know, all of us have done that. Uh, I remember talking to Emmett Gowan, tremendous photographer. He said, you know, I had to do a lot of Robert Frank to find Emmett Gowan. Hmm. <laughs> <Interestingly>, <laughs> Chuck Close said that he had to do a lot of de Kooning in order to find Chuck Close. And when you get up close on a Chuck Close painting, you can see it. I was like, oh, okay. Now I get it. Uh, um, it makes a lot of sense. Right? And yet... All of that has been digested and, and more has been woven into our web, you know, the little, the little node in the larger web that each of us is. I think the other thing is um, we have ideas about uh, what we think we should be. And then by doing the work, we find out that we're a little different than we thought. We're a little more. We're a little unusual. There, there's some things that don't quite fit the mold, and we didn't really have words for those. We, we forgot to, you know, leave, leave extra room and space for the newness that is us. I mean, we're individuals. We're at a unique moment in time. My goodness, are we, right? Uh, so hopefully that, that will saturate our work as well and, and add more to that authenticity. So you may find yourself drawn to certain things again and again and again. And uh, unless you ask the question, you know, why? And I don't mean to make people self-conscious. I don't. I want. I don't want people to be challenging themselves as much as just being self-aware. So, oh, I'm doing that again. Oh, 
you know, I really like that. I'm not, I don't quite know how to put words to that. Or if you can find some words, I mean, it's not quite this, but it's almost this, you know, keep that rolling till you find out what it is. Um, I had to push on myself because I realized at a certain point that every single image I made had a horizon in it. And then I was absolutely <laughs> obsessed, just obsessed with the horizon line. You know, this thing that we can see, but that, you know, doesn't really exist. It's this optical product of where we happen to be at one point in time and we move and it moves and you can never really catch up with it like a rainbow. And there's just right. so many things about the horizon that just fascinate me. I, I deliberately had to say, okay, enough with the horizon for a little bit. I mean, you, I'm not saying stop. I didn't take a horizon vow of silence. I, I still leaned into it, but I also just put myself on point and said, okay, JP, find some way to make some images that work for you that don't have a horizon in them. <laughs> the first thing I, I did that. was reflected reflected skies and water where I shot the shot so that it, the edge of the frame was the horizon, so you couldn't see the horizon inside the frame. Said, yeah, okay, but like... Yeah, keep going, keep going. Um, it's helped me get into some more maximal um, abstract pieces that I've been doing in the last few years. But, yeah. you know, it took a while. Um, so um, that all suggests that this is a relationship. There are many things that we're naturally attracted to and we want to deepen our relationships with them. We want to spend more time with that, find out more about that, ask a lot of questions, make a lot of images. I think in many ways making images is matter of asking questions and also just a way of attending things. Oh, there, there, that is, I don't know what exactly that is, but I'm, I'm having this moment and I, I want to honor that. I want to record that. I want to, there's a tremendous sense of acceptance. And I think that really comes through in portraiture as well. When you ask somebody. Maybe, maybe that's a good uh, segue for one of the questions I wanted to ask you, um, which I think is really foundational question that people should probably be asking themselves on a regular basis. But you know, the question is, what is your art of and what is it about and what is the difference between those two things? Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, I'm so glad that this is getting out there more. You know, this question is coming up more and more. I've been hammering on it for decades and it yeah. just seems to be popping out there. It's great. You know, it's, it's easy to make photographs of subjects. It's about the things. And that was particularly... Um, let me side. Let me just parking pause. lot. Yeah, it's it's easy for them to become a laundry list. Uh, here's some cool stuff, and 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 the way to amp up our photographs. Just yeah, I'll come back. I'll tell you a story in just a second. Is a fun one. It's easy to point the lens at something, something. But I think when work really, uh, when photographs or images really work, it's when the lens is pointing in both directions. You're looking outside and you're looking inside, and there's a meeting of the two. Uh, yes, there's, there's something special. And there, I think we start to get into the idea of making things that are about things. You could be photographing uh, solitary objects, and that could be about solitude, or it could be about loneliness. And those are totally different orientations towards singular objects, which could also mean individuality depending on the way that you approach them, the way that you process them, the way that you collect them and put them into groups and sequence them, you can make these larger statements that suggest it's not just a solitary rock and there is a relationship between a solitary tree and a solitary cloud. I'm using the word solitary. We could be other adjectives, right, for one thing. It's just one example of there is the subject and there's the theme. You know, The subject yeah. is what it's of, 
the theme is what it's about. So <clears throat> follow up to that would be how do you know when you're making a photo that has that quality? Uh, hopefully you feel it. You know, and I think um, so many people will say this, that, you know, they, they, they felt something powerful when they were making the images, but they don't always know what it is. And I, and I think sometimes our best images come in and surprise us for the, I think there's like 50 interviews on my website with different photographers. Um, I, I think one of the things that came up the most in all of those conversations I've had with photographers is the images that meant the most to them uh, surprised them, that they were breakthroughs, that they had prepared themselves, they had their craft, they tried to be in the right place at the right time, they tried to get in their zone. But even then, they were open enough to be surprised. Uh, I, I love that. I, I hear also that those tend to be career-defining images or often the ones that sell the most or the most celebrated. Uh, there's, there's some sense of discovery. And I think that's what creativity is really about. It's a, it's a process of discovery. And there's many ways of entering into that. There's well, a fun story. I'm, I'm sitting on the stage yeah. at Photoshop World. We've got the fine art of photography nights, which is nice. It's not just about Photoshop. Oh, yeah, show me some actions. Show me some, right? It's about the art. And so classically, uh, Joe McNally's going, and he's got this great line, you know, if you want to take more interesting photographs, go to more interesting places. You know, <laughs> Jay Maisel follows up next. He says, you know, if you want to make more interesting pictures, be more interesting. <laughs> Just That's like, right. Uh, you know, they're both right, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tend to think that the, the second one is probably even more accurate, though. I mean, the more interesting person you are, the more interesting photos you can make. And interesting is a pretty broad Word. I mean, it can encapsulate so many different things. You know, for example, Absolutely. I feel like as nature photographers, one thing we can make our one way to make ourselves more interesting is to have more knowledge about natural the natural world, right? Yeah. Um, because you start to see things and you start to recognize patterns, or you start to recognize, oh, that thing looks like that at this time of the year because of that thing, and oh, I can like make a photo using that concept and oh it represents this other thing so you just you, your brain just starts going off right and, and i think go in so many directions i mean right if you're just looking at it scientifically you're out in nature so you could study geology and you'd make very interesting pictures about rocks and minerals you could study weather and you'd make awesome skyscapes you could study botany and all the plants would, could be fascinating right yeah. or you could be a psychologist and you might be speaking about metaphor or you might be speaking about relationships through yep. uh, some sense of simile. Uh, or you could be a mathematician and you could be talking about fractal patterns, which is exactly what I felt that Elliot Porter had kind of intuitively sensed in a lot of his early work. And I was absolutely delighted when uh, Janet Rusick is a dealer for many years and still deals in their work, um, put James Glick, the guy who wrote Chaos, uh, together with Elliot Porter to create the book nature's chaos it was like yes elliot saw this other order in nature intuitively before this was all popularized then there was this explosion of it in part fueled by computers and the two kind of got together and now now we have this other language now we know about mandelbrot sets and julia sets and all kinds of other stuff so there's there's a big point of that is there are so many ways that you can enter into a subject. And if you just pick the thing that excites you the most and go deep, your work is going to get deeper and you're going to have a whole lot more fun doing it. Right. Yeah. And it's personally satisfying. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool. Well, one thing I wanted to ask you as well is um, 
you know, how has photography allowed you to discover extraordinary things in the ordinary? Well, I mean, right there, I think, is um, a discipline of uh, um, a kind of mindfulness practice of, of just really settling back, getting quiet, listening, looking, using all the senses, really, but you know, like really tuning in both outside and inside. Um, I, I think that's where this sense of tuning into the extraordinary and the ordinary, another big concept in photography, which I think is a wonderful thing. It's a, it's something we should wish for everyone. So I, I find it, it's just the process. It's the creative impulse and the way that you guide your way through that is a vehicle for being that way. And it's more a mode of being. I honestly think that pictures are more about ways of seeing and ways of being than they are about things, ultimately, at least when they get really interesting. And right. as, as a vehicle, and imagine in the old days, maybe you didn't put film in your camera, but you still went out there and had those experiences. Wouldn't that be enough? Probably. I think, I think so. Yeah. And yet there's this wonderful feedback when we look at our Lightroom libraries, we look at the prints on our walls and we get to have this extended relationship with them. That's also really cool too. I mean, we get to reflect on what happened before and also how we perceive what we did as, as we change, as we age, as we accumulate new perspectives and new experiences. So it's, it's as a way of finding personal fulfillment and uh, as a tool for personal development, it's fantastic. And you can approach it in so many ways. Yeah. I'm curious, extending to that, like how have these discoveries helped you understand where you fit into the world? Um, I think it's helped me retrain my Western mind. Um, There's a lot to unpackage right there. <laughs> yeah, there is. And let's see if we can do it quickly. The, the Western mind is so analytical and materialistic that it would be mm -hmm. easy to reduce us into a thing, an object. What are your pictures of? Just the facts, ma'am. Mm -hmm. When really we're a process, we're deeply connected with each other and with the world that supports us, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat, and it all passes through us as we're passing through it. The idea that we're somehow separate from, I don't really like the word it. <laughs> I've been writing about this recently because language in some cases can become part of the problem. If we describe the world as it, instead of the world as us, right? right. <laughs> um, it creates this mental division, this, this psychic division that is, to my mind, not healthy. Mm -hmm. That if we described rocks as part of our community, we would feel differently about walking in the world. Um, I, I think we would actually feel more deeply connected and enriched. Um, I think also all the kinds of things we were just talking about tuning in, all those different perspectives, whether it's science or psychology or aesthetics or whatever you like, each one of those is another way of appreciating this world. I mean, you know, you get out there, you're climbing the top of that mountain the whole way through. You're, you're out there, you're up there, you're in it. It's extraordinary. You yeah, know, absolutely. I, we find those moments where we just kind of lit up and we know what we're experiencing is, um, it's just lighting us up. And we know it, it's incredible. And we also know, we don't even know the 10th of it. You know, there's just so much more out there and we want to keep going back and having more experiences and getting deeper into it, getting deeper into us. It seems so, like that, it seems like that shift also 
forces you to change what you value, right? Like, I feel like there's a there's like a big push um, probably in the last five years where photography and nature is kind of like this commodity that people use kind of to their benefit, you know, like influencers and, you know, like I'm going to elevate my status and, you know, make a bunch of money because I'm seen as this, I don't know, like this personality out in nature or whatever. And, but I think if you shift it the way you're describing, you know, your value then becomes like, how do I show the world how special this is and how were we a part of this thing? And, and it changes the way that you think about everything, right? Like, like if those plants and those rocks and those trees are us, you know, like you're going to think twice before you take an action that might, you know, endanger those things. That's right. You might consume differently. You might vote differently. You might live differently. You might prioritize things differently. Not only would you maybe not be worried quite so much about your bank account, you know, the one who dies with the most toys wins. No, the one who dies having lived the richest life and having given the most back to the world. Um, at that point, there's no real winning, right? I mean, you just like, that's <laughs> right. fulfillment, but like nobody won. Everybody wins, right? <laughs> so you, you might live a different life. Um, but you will certainly have a different experience getting there and that that's what living is about. So yeah, yeah. Anyway, photography has been a wonderful way to tune into all of that. It can be for so many people. And it's really just about mindset. How, how are you being? How are you thinking? How are you feeling? And what, what would you like to share? What kind of conversation would you like to strike up with your images, whether they're in social networks or on a book or on your website? What kind of conversation you want to have? Let that reflect your concerns, your your passions. And just just be you. Guarantee if, if you're celebrating what you love, um, it's just going to get interesting and it's also going to get authentic. Yeah. The quality of work will go way up. Yeah. Remember, your tribe might shrink a little because maybe you're not delivering the, don't you love this term, landscape porn? (laughs) (laughs) You remember the Google Plus days where it's just, everybody would say like, oh, Google Plus was just a bunch of landscape porn. Never heard that phrase before, but that's pretty funny. Yeah, no, that's true though. Yeah, I don't want to be clickbait, do you? Not really, no. (laughs) I don't have to think like long about that. It's like, I want to have an interesting conversation with somebody like you. I want to go do interesting things. I want to share that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's because, um, as you were saying earlier, that Western, Western philosophy that we, you know, that we're ingrained, that are ingrained into us as people who grew up in the United States or, you know, in Europe, well, I guess Western Europe, but you know, it's, uh, what we've come to value is money and status and, and you know success as measured by those things and it's uh maybe that's not what's important well i think in the in the era of climate crisis and when we're experiencing the kind of soul nostalgia that we're experiencing this sense of um that we're the problem that's that's tough to burden younger people with much less live with ourselves i don't want to be the problem like i want to be at least a conscientious participant and i would love to be part of the solution if i could be um i i think that western materialism has run us into this psychic crisis i mean you've probably read Jung's Modern Man in Search of His Soul. This is part of that. Uh, and it's it's why a lot of us are also looking at uh, primal cultures 
and, and other ways of um, thinking about our place in, in the world. I'd be curious to hear you talk a little bit about how that shift in mindset has changed your approach to your photography and or your business practices as a photographer. Mm, mm. Well, it, it just about in every way. Um, I can give you a few examples. Um, it wasn't really conscious, but I, 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 because I track other artists' influence on me, I just have this quick little journal. I note the year, and then I note if an artist comes through that it really made an, uh, an impression on me that was strong, I'll just put it there. And I looked at it maybe five years ago and I said, you know, for the last five, 10 years that you got more environmental sculptures and sculptors in general here um, than you do painters or photographers or what's up with that. And I look at my stuff and I say, you know, this is like virtual environmental art that you're doing, right? And you you kind of put those two together. Um, It also changes the way that I lead the workshops that I teach. I'm really encouraging people to go out there and find their voices. I'm, I'm not trying to sh- set up shots for them. I'm trying to help them discover their voices. And I really would like to encourage them to strike up their own relationship with the natural world, have their have their own rich experiences. Sometimes they surprise the heck out of me. Like, they do things I never would have thought of. And it's really quite wonderful. Um it, it changes what I read. It changes what I, um, you know, what I do with myself on just about every, every moment of the day. Yeah. Have you, as a person who I assume probably mostly subsists on income derived from the craft of art, uh, have you ever found yourself facing kind of a conflict where there's something that you know will make you a lot of money but it goes against kind of what you personally believe in. Sure, I've I've, I've come to those crossroads. Yes, I just don't I just don't go there. Um, it's just not who I want to be, and I'm I'm always thinking about um, how the choices that I make are are part of my own life ecosystem. I mean, will this help me be the person I want to be? Uh, is there another way of, of approaching something similar? Sometimes you, you just pass on some opportunities. It's just like, nah, it's, a, it's not the right fit. It might be lucrative, but it's not the right fit. I mean, I got to sleep at night. I don't want to rationalize my way through life. Right. <laughs> if I know it's not right at the time. Um, yeah, I totally get that. I mean, gosh, I would much rather <laughs> have a little bit less money in my bank account than not be able to go to sleep or live with myself. Yeah. There's no peace of mind pill, right? No, no, there's no <laughs> amount of money that'll make me feel better about that. Yeah. Right. Right. And, yeah. And <laughs> I'd rather not have to do that much confession or penance or <laughs> let's just get it right. The first time I know I'm going to make enough mistakes along the way anyway. <laughs> exactly. Why not do it on purpose? Like, no need to do it on purpose. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, so earlier you, you you talked a lot about various inspirations for your work, and I'd be curious to hear you talk a little bit about how you seek out inspiration for your work. Like, what are your what are some methods other people might be able to do to to do the same thing? Oh, you know, look a lot, read a lot, go places if you can. Um, you don't often have to get hard, f- go far. Um, mindfulness practices are very useful to me, um, which if done in the right way, yoga can be a mindfulness practice as well as walking, as well as walking in nature. Right. Yes. Um, I I remember talking to Howard Schatz a while ago and he said, you know, what I would recommend to young people is build a large visual library. And he 
walks his talk. He says he, he lives right around the corner from Rizzoli in New York. And he goes in and looks at all the magazines and the books uh, over his cup of coffee and tries to look at, I don't know, 500 images or something every morning. Wow. <laughs> you could just see how he's, he's endlessly kind of inventive and creative. He's a very interesting photographer to look at his, his diversity and his output. And so he's feeding himself, not just, you know, food on the table, but food for the brain and the soul and the heart. Um, you know, I would, I would seek it out in any, any way that you can. And if you can attend to it, um, ingest it, uh, experience it um, a little more mindfully, uh, a little more deeply, a little more, I don't like the word critically. I'm not sure what other word we have that indicates, um, you know, like clear thinking, like really thinking it through, uh, not necessarily analytically or coldly, but at least um, rigorously. Maybe that's a better word for any of that. You know, like go deep, you know, don't just stay on the surface. I don't know. It's not always first thought, best thought. Sometimes you just need to stick with something and, and, and see how it's connected to all the other thoughts. Um, then, I th then I think we're really kind of sucking the marrow out of the bone. We're just getting more out of what we're going for. And but once again, I mean, once you get a taste for that, you say, oh, it's a little stranger than I thought, but like, wow, this stuff is fascinating. You want some more, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, feed yourself. yeah, yeah. I know um, you'd mentioned earlier about poetry that you've been doing a lot of deep diving into poetry, and I'd love to hear about kind of how you've tried to uh, weave together, you know, poetry and photography, or you know, various art forms into like a synergistic um, expression of art um, through through that study. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's an ongoing experiment. But again, realizing that language shapes our thoughts, even shapes our sense of who we are and what the world is like, um, to be a little more mindful and in dialogue with language itself, uh, I, th I think has been tremendously helpful for me, as well as, you know, a lot of art and I, I think particularly poetry, um, though you might look at music too. It, it, so much of the activity we do is um, heart-based and, you know, photography can be such an analytical, technical mm -hmm. right. uh, tool that it's, it's um, easy to get focused on the things that are in our hands, the F-stops and the shutter speeds and the software, you know, it's manageable. And, and there's a clear way of navigating that where when you get into the interior the sub subjective, the soulful, it gets, gets a little murkier, you know, that's Dante's dark forest. You're, you're, you're having to find a, you're having to chart your way into an unknown territory that's never been mapped before. It's you, you know, like I said, we don't know what that country is called or what it's made up of. And you're, you're on this journey of discovery. So how do you give voice to all of the uh, emotions you go through, the experiences you have along the way? And I think language can help us understand, hey, what's happening or what just happened or what would I like to happen? Being clear with your language, uh, actually working with poetry. I find it really fascinating to see how people respond to different kinds of, of language. Like when I was in art school, I, I learned to write the 40 page tome, aesthetically analyzing a piece of literature and art. Sure. Oh, and now I endeavor to eschew obfuscation, and there's some mass disquisitional prolixity up with which I will no longer put. And I think most people don't want to hear much art speak anymore. You know, like, would you please <laughs> point? <laughs> you know, could you just say something interesting? <laughs> you know? 
And yet sometimes people have this fear of poetry too, because it's, it can be so wild and irrational and erratic and, but still strongly moving and powerful. Look at, look at Amanda Gorman's uh, inaugural uh, delivery. That was oh, right. Right, right, was right, quite yeah. a fascinating moment. Look at Martin Luther King's speeches, which are tremendously poetic and borrow a lot, of course, from the Bible. Many of those passages written as poetry. Um, poetry can be very compelling language. And I think that um, not only speaking about our work more poetically so that we can also touch the heart, but also using poetry as a way of understanding our experience and even other works of art. There's this phrase that I encountered. They didn't teach it to me when I was at Yale. Um, I only recently discovered, it's been around for a little while, but it's this resurgence. It's called ekphrastic poems are about uh, appreciating other works of art by writing a poem about it or in response to it is a better way of saying it. So one piece of art generates another piece of art, and there's this translation. Often it starts with something that's visual, but not exclusively. It might also be a performance or music or something else. And then there's this other new art experience. Um, you know, a poetry can be looked at as not just um, something that looks good on the page, like an image, but also something that's read, performed, like music, and also an experience that in order to read it, you you have to experience it. You go through the experience rather than a mathematical equation. You know, this is a picture of a mountain plus a river plus some clouds. It's Utah. End of story. Equals awesome. Equals <laughs> <It was> awesome. <laughs> Hashtag amazing. Right. <laughs> Hashtag do it again. Hashtag because everybody else has already. <laughs> Hashtag <safe>. banger. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's you know of course it's not about is the subject doesn't make it good or bad um it's what you do with it same right. same with photography same with photoshop so anyway right. i think um poetry is going through a very interesting phase as well in part because of the internet also uh there are more than 4500 independent literary journals so there's been this explosion of venues for poetry and this explosion of people writing it, just like photography. There's more than 3 trillion photographs made, half of them made with the iPhone, right? Every year, 3 trillion. <laughs> That's more than all photographs made in the previous history of photography, all years. It's wild, isn't it? <laughs> it's, well, uh, it's this tsunami of content. Uh, and so we're all struggling to filter it and then figure out when we make our content, how do we share it? How do we get it to stand out? Who do we want to share it with? What difference does it make? Um, these, are, these are big questions that we're we're kind of working out. It's a grand social experiment. Life is very different than than before the web. We're very yeah, different was, because we're living our lives very differently. Yeah, I was going to say probably the worst way to do it is what we're seeing now, which is algorithm driven. <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's. Um, I, I think it's just. It's the teenage years of, of online social network stuff. You know, just going through this dark, tempestuous phase. Um, it's got to change because more and more people are just getting upset and tuning out. Um, yeah, so, I agree. you know, yeah. we, it, it's an issue politically and in so many other ways for, for oh, people gosh. suffering depression. Yeah, I was going to say, we uh, don't have to talk shaming. about that part. Right. The, the fact that um, it's it, creating political unrest. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, and also depression in young people, and oh, big um, time, a lot yeah. of body shaming, particularly for young women. And it's a, there are a lot of social issues that um, we, as a society and as 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 communities, need to find ways to uh, cultivate the kinds of activities and and um, experiences we're interested in having. Uh, otherwise, I think you've seen it. Like people are just tuning out. More and more yeah. people just like you. It's only the people who feel like they have to be on Facebook that are still on on Facebook. It's like that joke, you know, the kid posts WTF, my dad is on Facebook, and his dad comments in the in the post, "What's WTF mean? Welcome to Facebook, Dad." <laughs> <laughs> it's like, um, you know, that's that's the funnier, lighter side of um, there. There are some dark issues here as well. Well, and I think we can see think- it. Man- we see it manifesting with in photographers and artists as well, like. A lot of people comparing themselves to others and then trying to emulate what other people are doing that they, you know, outwardly see as successful based on likes and comments, which is probably not the best bar to set for um, art, you know. So, you know, I think my advice for people is as much as you can resist comparing yourself to other people in social media it's just a very toxic exercise can be right at best we could say what's different about me celebrate that lean into that yeah and give yourself yeah. permission to just tune out when you need to yeah absolutely don't play if you don't want to for a while yeah right? i love david Duchemin. right he's a great guy i love his little um just jumping off of social networks for the last year plus and you know, just say, okay, I'm going to do it another way. You know, he's still serving his community. He still has a vital relationship, but it's fascinating yeah, it's to totally, see that, right? It's totally doable. Yeah. 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 But also I think we can participate in those arenas in, in positive ways. You know, if you just oh, yeah. keep putting the good stuff out, um, you know, once in a while, I feel like we might be able to um, call attention to some bad behavior. Um, we might be able to, offer a softer touch with someone when, when they've kind of strayed off the path that, you know, we could help things along if we have the energy for it. But even if you just keep pumping out good, authentic stuff, I mean, not toxic positivity, (laughs) what a wonderful phrase, right? (laughs) But like, you know, conscientious good stuff, which sometimes is, is sharing heart work as well, right? There's that, oh, this feels heavy. I'm, you know, I feel for these people. I mean, gosh, 2020, I mean, we talked about the pause, but also as as I'm looking out the window, I, I just had to tune off any email, social networks, web news until noon, because then you look out at the world and the death count rising and the fires going and it's just this collective grieving and it's it's, it's heavy, but it's important to, to acknowledge um, that people are in pain and, and to empathize, not tune out, right? But you get yeah. to pick... When and where and how. Yeah, I know. I agree. Well, awesome, man. Um, You know, wrapping things up, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about your newsletter and what our listeners can get out of subscribing to it. Sure. So my newsletter is free and it gives access to, I've lost track of how many hundreds of resources, articles. This has been a 17-year project and, and counting. Um, there's literally about three books of information, and my blog has information, and some of those are members-only resources. So you sign up, you use your new, your email that you signed up with to, to log in, and you get all the free stuff. So you get alerts about what the new content is. 
as well cool. as access to all the old content. Yeah. So you, you said 17 years worth of content? Yeah. I started building this website in 2005. Uh, initially, nice. I thought, I do not want to do a blog. I just don't have that much to say. And then when I finally did the blog, what I realized is that, you know, nature does abhor a vacuum and you start thinking about, well, what could I write about? And then you start collecting all your resources. Yeah. Um, now ultimately <laughs> I've, I've delayed publishing a few books because it, it, it just better, it reaches more people online. You know, there's like 27,000 folks who were signed up and thousand people hit the website every day. And, you know, so it's nice. serving a lot of people. That's a, it's a neat way to do that. And, and it's, it's really gratifying for me to hear, you know, the email that I get back and say, thank you. You're so generous with your resources. And I always say, look, pass it forward, you know, enrich this community as you're doing with these conversations. It's just really important to realize we're part of the community and, and contributing to it is, is a privilege. Uh, That's a fact. <laughs> well said. Right. Yeah. All right, John. Well, um, curious who you would recommend for the podcast. Who should our listeners know more about? I was thinking that uh, Eddie Soloway would be a good fit since um, there's as as much concern about nature. Eddie's been teaching workshops, photographic workshops, largely through Santa Fe, but throughout the rest of the country, even the world, um, and, and really has this uh, wonderful way of encouraging people to connect deeply with nature um, and themselves through photography. I think he'd be a really good person to check in with. Awesome. That sounds like a great suggestion. Well, man, this has been really fun. I had a great time and feel like uh, we probably could have talked for like three more hours. <laughs> I think that's about right. Yeah. Maybe I'll come back sometime. <laughs> sounds yeah, good. That might, that might be a lot of fun. Pleasure. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks to John Paul for joining me for the great chat this week on the podcast. I had a really great time conversing with you and have really been enjoying looking at your very unique artwork over on your website. I encourage everyone to check it out. The best way to describe it would be a blending of traditional landscape photography and cubism or surrealism painting. I also highly encourage you to go look at his website and find lots of resources, interviews, and other great tidbits worth exploring. If you enjoyed our conversation, head over to patreon.com forward slash fstop and listen to hear us discuss the study of creativity where John Paul reveals some really great resources to help you improve upon your creativity, which can be taught. Supporting the podcast on Patreon is how you can express that you value it, but you can also realize some other benefits. At $5 per month, you get access to bonus episodes. At the time of this recording, we have over 179 bonus episodes over on Patreon. At $10 per month, you get access to the bonus episodes, as well as early access to nearly every episode before it goes public, often a full month in advance. For those of you already supporting, thank you. I recently shipped t-shirts to all patrons that have been supporting me for more than $200 over the lifetime of their patronage, and I hope to do more things like that over time, but I need your support to make it happen. Okay, lastly, next week's episode is a special panel on printmaking featuring John Sexton, Joseph Holmes, and Michael Strickland. Really excited to release that one. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.